0: Twenty plus years ago, this is what Jim looked like <laughs> soon after we got in, um, soon after we started dating. Um, I took a trip to the Far East. I was gone for a month um, dela Paz family i 'm sorry I did not make it to the Philippines, but I did go to Indonesia, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And I was going to be gone for a whole month. And we you know, were in the throes of new new love and new romance. And it was really hard to think about being separated and away from each other for that long. Now, we actually were in a long-distance relationship. We didn't live in the same place. I lived in Colorado. He lived in California. We were already dealing with that. But we talked on the phone all the time and came to visit each other. And just to think of a whole month of separation was Whew, how are we going to do that? And so Jim met me at the airport, and he had this picture to give me. He gave me this picture of himself, um, not only that he can you believe I still have this? He gave me this envelope with this really long letter in it, like this whole letter, and he had a calendar on the back, so we could count down the days until we saw each other again. And it wasn't just this picture that he gave me. He gave me 12 pictures of himself to take with me to Indonesia. And because you know a, th- a, a picture is worth a thousand words, but even one picture doesn't tell the whole story. So he sent many pictures so I would remember that he was a pilot, and so that I would remember that he had a sweet smile and kind eyes. And and he sent the famous X400 picture so that I would remember we had an inside joke and that he was fun and funny too. And he sent me these twelve pictures and this big long letter. And I tell you every day for 30 days i read that letter again and again every day i looked at that letter every day i pulled out those pictures to remember my jim and see his smile and i looked at him every day i believe that god is also unhappy with the fact that we are physically separated from him. And we cannot be in his physical presence and see him and talk to him every day like he was used to doing with Adam and Eve in the garden. And so he too has reached out to us and he too has given us a letter, a really long letter because he wants to be connected with us. And in this letter are several pictures, snapshots of himself. And today, I would like to look at a snapshot of Jesus, a picture of Jesus, gaze at a picture of Jesus, and remember our Jesus like I would sit and gaze at these pictures of Jim every day while I was on my trip. Um, I have been able to share with you several times over the last few years, and you probably haven't noticed, but I kind of have a series, and every time, almost every time, sometimes we vary, but almost every time, our uh, talk title starts with On the Way, because I've been building a series with you of how Jesus meets us on the way in real life, as we're living life. He's not waiting for us at the finish line. He's with us every day as we're living life on the way. And so uh, we've been talking about different snapshots of Jesus, different stories where Jesus met someone as they were just experiencing life and living day to day. And that's what we're going to look at today. And I hope that by the time we're done, Um, unpacking this story and really gazing at this picture of Jesus that you will experience the love of Christ though it is so great you will never fully understand it I am a very visual person so it really helps me to see pictures Um, our this is a picture of Israel in the time in Jesus' day, during the time of Jesus. And if you can see that, it was divided into kind of provinces, um, areas. And the top, the pink one is Galilee. That's where Jesus spent most of his time. Right there, it's right there on the where the Sea of Galilee is. Um, and way down at the bottom, the big orange one—that was Judea. That's where Jerusalem was. That was where Bethany was, where he stayed when he went to visit Jerusalem. Um, that's where Bethlehem was, where he was born. But most of his time was actually spent up in Galilee. In Galilee, you can see that's where Nazareth was, where he grew up. That's where Magdala was, where Mary the Magdalene was from. That's where Capernaum was, where he lived. Um, spent a lot of his ministry years that's where um, the city of Nain was where he raised the widow's wife and where Cana was where we just heard about the story where he turned the water into wine at the wedding he spent a lot of time in Galilee and as we get ready uh, to look at this one experience this one day in Jesus life um, I want to set the stage for you because Jesus had had some very very busy days he had just come back down from the Sermon on the Mount, and he had been traveling from town to town uh, in Galilee. In Capernaum, he had been teaching by the lake, which we call the Sea of Galilee. He had been healing people. He had healed a man of leprosy. He had healed Peter's mother-in-law. He had healed the centurion's servant. He had gone down to Nain, and he had raised the widow's son. He had healed a paralyzed man who had been let down through a roof, and huge crowds were following him all the time, everywhere he went, huge crowds. And he was teaching them in parables. And he had told them stories about sowing seeds. And he had told stories about lamps on a stand and about mustard seeds. And he had gotten to a point that he actually needed a break. He needed a reprieve from the crowds. And so he had gotten in a boat. And he had crossed the lake with his disciples. And in that crossing, there had been a big storm. And he had calmed the storm. And when he got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he had run into a couple of demon-possessed men. And he had taken care of that situation. And so he was not getting the break that he needed when he got in the boat to get a reprieve. And he had sailed back to Capernaum. And guess what? Just like the paparazzi, these crowds followed him everywhere. They knew he was gonna, where he was going to be before he got there. And they were waiting for him. And now he was with a large crowd. Can you feel how tired Jesus might have been? He was with a large crowd, deep in conversation with John's disciples when he was interrupted by a desperate man. Now, our story was recorded in three different gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I have mashed them all together. And we're going to read this story with all the details, as if it was just one story, with all the details from all three. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake, for they were all expecting him. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I don't know if this has ever struck you, but... I say, really? That was your question? He has been raising the dead and healing all these people and has all this amazing teaching and is clearly different than anyone they've ever seen before. And their question is, how come we have to fast and you guys don't? <laughs> that was their. That's not even what we're talking about today, but that just blows my mind that that was their question. But they, he had got them in this conversation. And while he was answering this, a synagogue leader came named Jairus, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, can you picture before this, if he was walking with someone walking and talking, picture how Jesus might have been walking, ambling along having a conversation. But imagine how they were walking now. There's still this crowd around them, but this man has come with his urgency, with his, you know, his daughter is dying. You can imagine that. Now he and Jesus are on the move. Jesus is walking fast and and you know, with purpose, and they're getting out of there and heading toward this little girl. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. How hard would that make it to get there quickly? As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her and seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, she told the whole truth. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had instantly been healed. He said to her, take heart, daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What do you think Jairus was thinking during all this? What do you think this moment was like for him? I don't know about you, but I would have been getting more and more stressed and more and more tense. Why are we standing here? Why are we talking to this lady? My daughter is dying. I thought you were coming with me. You know, we we live here in Castle Rock, and our kids go to school up at Mile High. It's a bit of a drive to get to school every day. And this year, more than others, there's been more traffic and more accidents than we've ever seen on this freeway. And so we give ourselves enough time, but sometimes we're driving up to school and you can see those red lights, all the red lights stacking up. And you can see that traffic is slowing down. And you can feel our blood pressure start to rise. And you can feel the tension. No, 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 no. We got to get there on time. Our grades are affected if we're late to school. And you can you can feel, and I can feel that tension rising with Jairus. Come on, why are we standing around? And then, the worst of his fears. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter, is dead. They said, Why bother the teacher anymore? Just come home. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. And she will be healed. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house, he saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes. Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. And he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. After the crowd had been put outside, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. And he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha cum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. Oh my lands! to spend a day with Jesus. What an amazing experience, what an amazing thing to go through to spend a day with Jesus. Well that is the setting of our story. I would like to spend some time looking at the characters in our story. These two people who interrupted Jesus that day. They couldn't have been more different. Jairus, was a synagogue official. He had position. He had respect. He had a a respectable job. He was looked up to. He had money. She, uh, and he had a name. She's not even, we don't know her name. She was a woman. This was a time and a place where women were kind of second-class citizens. A woman could never testify in court. No one would believe the testimony of a woman. In fact, in the Talmud, which is a rabbi's um, commentaries and interpretations of the Bible, people just discussing Uh, the Bible and what it means and how it applies to our lives. In the Talmud there is a prayer, a blessing that Jewish men are supposed to pray every morning and it goes like this, blessed are you Lord our God ruler of the universe who has not made me a woman and they also include who has not made me a Gentile or a slave. Those are the categories that women were placed in. This woman did not have status. She did not have um, an equal place in this society with um, this man Jairus. He was high class. She was poor. Whether she had perhaps had money in the past, at this point she had spent all she had. She had nothing. That didn't help her status in society either. He was known for his status. He was Jairus the synagogue official. She all we, the only identifying mark we have for her is she was a woman with who was bleeding, a woman with a physical problem. That was She was known for her problem. He had a 12-year-old girl, she had a 12-year-old problem. He came in a crisis moment of his life. His whole life wasn't a crisis, but this moment was a crisis for him. She came with a chronic problem. She had been experiencing this for many years. It was just getting worse and worse and worse. Oh, did I push this? Oh, my lands. <laughs> Don't look. <laughs> Everybody close your eyes. <laughs> okay. Um. <clears throat> he was confident enough to come and faced Jesus. He came to Jesus's face and asked him his request. He had some sense of self dignity, some sense of security, some sense of self worth. She came behind Jesus, she was trying to be unnoticed. She did not have that same confidence and security that he did. You see the difference between these people? He came as his daughter's advocate. She had no advocate. They couldn't have been more different, Jairus and the woman, the ruler and the woman. He was a synagogue official. His job was to care for the physical arrangements of the synagogue services. So he had a very important position. He was in charge of the sacred part of town. The furniture and all the Torah scrolls were all under, he was the supervisor of all that. He was in charge of all that. He would have been one of the most prominent men in the city, highly respected, well off. He was the one that people came to to take care of their needs. He didn't need much. She, on the other hand, um, I was looking up uh, any kind of information I could find that would help me understand this woman. Um, and I found an article that was about a commentary on the Mishnah. So there are lots of commentaries on the Jewish um, scriptures. So the, the Mishnah is part of the Talmud. It's all rabbis writing. And then this commentary was scholars writing about the rabbis' interpretations of the scriptures, okay? So all these discussions about what does the Bible really mean and what is God really saying? Now, this commentary was written after the time of Jesus, but it can give some insight into how people were thinking in those days. Um, In this commentary, scholars were discussing a husband's obligations if his wife was ill. And one very highly respected scholar said, a man can divorce his wife if she's sick a long time, and it would be too costly to care for her. So when she starts to cost too much, she can be discarded. Um, Another one said, well, the husband is only obligated to care for a sick wife if she's bedridden. If she's not bedridden, and she's costing too much, she can, she can, he can divorce her. And in a divorce, a husband would give his wife a writ of divorce and a sum of money. So it's very possible since she had been sick for 12 years, it's very possible that this woman was in a situation where she had been handed a divorce by her husband along with her inheritance money and been booted from... Her home. She clearly did not have someone with her. She did not have a man that was taking her to Jesus, like this man was uh, representing his daughter and advocating for his daughter. She didn't have a man that was advocating for her. By Jewish law, a man could not approach a woman to have children if she was bleeding. So she was in a position where no one would marry her. It seems like she was on her own. She had spent all her money in desperate attempt to be cured. So she had no money. It appears she had no man. And in her day, a man not only gave you security, a man gave you your identity. You were so-and-so, the mother of so-and-so, or you were so-and-so, the wife of so-and-so. You, when you were attached to a man, you had an identity. It's hard for our brains to wrap (laughs) around that in 21st century America, but just try and put yourself in the shoes of this woman. She, um, at this point, her life was hopeless. She was a nobody. She appears to be alone in the world. She could not marry if she continued to be ill. She couldn't earn a living. She had no money left. No doctors could help her. She had tried all the medical care that was available. This woman was out of options. This prophet from Galilee was her only hope in the world. And it says that she told him the whole truth. She may have told this story when she finally realized that she couldn't go unnoticed, which is what she wanted. She was trying to hide. She felt like a nobody but it says that she told her whole story. She may have told this story of everything that had happened to her that had brought her to this point. And so we see that it's very significant how Jesus answered her. When he answered her, and I love how Jesus does this. When you read stories about Jesus in the Bible, watch for this, because so many times with one word or one phrase or one sentence, Jesus will say, volumes, and he will say everything that that person needed to hear. And when he responded to this woman, he called her daughter. He called her daughter. And in that moment, he gave her an identity. He attached her to himself. In her society, she had to be attached to a man to have an identity. And he attached her to himself. All of us have the same struggle that this woman had. We are all searching for identity. We are all searching for value, for self-worth, right? for something that tells us that we're worth something, something that tells us that we are worthy of respect. And we search. We search and we try and we say maybe i will have value if i have a, a lot of degrees after my name and i have a good education maybe i will have value if i have a lot of money or i drive a certain car maybe i'll have value if i look a certain way if i'm tall enough or have enough muscles or if i'm skinny enough my, if i'm glamorous enough maybe i will have value if someone will marry me or someone will love me maybe i will have value if i have children maybe I, we we all if i have whatever Fill in the blank. And every one of us has to come to that point where we recognize that that's all empty. And our identity comes when we attach ourselves to Jesus, when we find our identity in him. And he calls us daughter. And he calls us son. And we have personal value. We are worthy of respect because we are Christ's. And that's what this woman got to experience this day. Jesus called her daughter and connected her to himself to give her identity. I am um, intrigued by the fact that they both started their journey to Jesus the same year. He, 12 years before, he had a baby girl. And one day, that baby girl would bring her to the feet, him to the feet of Jesus. And 12 years ago, she got sick. And one day, that sickness would bring her to the feet of Jesus. This number 12 is interesting in the Bible. Um, It usually seems to represent God's people, God's church. Um, There were 12 tribes of Israel, right? There were 12 apostles. And when one apostle died, they didn't just go with 11. They had to replace that apostle. There had to be 12. In the book of Revelation, where we see a woman dressed in white that represents the church, she has 12 stars in her crown. Also in the book of Revelation, where we read about a group of people at the end of time who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. There are 144,000 of them, uh, a representative number. That's 12 times 12,000. It says 12,000 from every tribe. The New Jerusalem has 12 gates and 12 foundation stones. And I kind of think, I don't know if this was intended in this story, but when I look at this story, and these two people who took 12 years to get to the feet of Jesus, I kind of think they represent the two kinds of people that come to Jesus. Some of us come like the woman. Life has beaten us up. She came shoulders down, feeling like a nobody, Uh, wanting to be hidden, um, without the respect of society. You know, living in a sinful world, the result of a sinful world, had broken her, and she felt it. She felt her brokenness. She felt her emptiness. And some of us, that's our experience in life. We know that we have messed up, or we have really been battered by life. Um, And we don't feel worthy to come to Jesus. But some of us are a little bit more like Jairus. Jairus didn't have that in- innate humility. He was well educated. He had lived a good life. He was a respectable person. Um, and for those of us maybe who grew up in a Christian home and and, you know, the people like the woman who have really been broken, those are the people that we think have a testimony, you know. I did all these drugs, and I, my life was such a mess, and I came, those people have a testimony. Those of us who are a little bit more like gyrus feel like we don't have a testimony. Well, I don't have all this messiness to tell you about. And yet we still wear the scars of a sinful world. We still have sin in our hearts. We still are beaten up in different ways by just the presence of sin in our world. It's been here for thousands of years, and we can't get through life without pain. Some of us, it's very easy to feel our need for Jesus. Some of us, it's not so easy. Sometimes it comes in a different way. And for Jairus, it came on this day, where there was finally something that he couldn't control, finally something that he couldn't fix, finally something that made him feel his need of Jesus. And so we are all like Jairus or like this woman. And here's the day that these two people, who seemed like total opposites, who seemed like they had nothing in common, this is the day that they became the same. This is the day that they were both desperate. This is the day that they both interrupted Jesus and recognized that I need help outside of myself. And it is this holy man who, probably is my only hope. This is the day that they both fell at Jesus' feet. They had both experienced the way of pain, as the Bible calls sin, in different ways. But coming to the feet of Jesus, that was the place that they needed to be. No matter their status, life brought them both to the point of feeling their need. Whether rich or poor, honored or despised, they found themselves at the same place. Though they came by different routes, they found themselves falling before Jesus. The ground at Jesus' feet is level. No one in Jesus' eyes is higher or lower. It doesn't matter. And that's what I love about the church. Someone with a PhD can sit next to someone who has never been to school. And they're the same. They're brothers. They're sisters. They're the same. Um, and that is the beauty of both because Jesus saw them both. Some of us feel very seen. Some of us feel unseen. But in Jesus, he sees us. He sees you. He loved them both. He ministered to them both because and this is one of the beautiful things about God God does not show favoritism. We do. We judge people instantly. And we judge if that's someone we're going to feel comfortable with or not. If that's someone we're going to respect or not. If that's someone we're going to listen to or not. If that's someone we're going to sit next to or not. We judge quickly, but that is not what God is like. The Bible says he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of His hand. Your identity, your value is not in how you look, it's not in how rich or poor you are, it's not in what you achieve in life. Your value or in your identity comes from the fact that you are the work of His hand. He made you. You are His child, and that makes you precious. On that day, both Jairus and this unnamed woman discovered that god was there a very an ever-present help in trouble some translations say abundantly available in their moment of need in their moment of trouble the bible says for the eyes of the lord roam throughout the earth there was a time when i did not have a healthy good picture of God in my mind. And this idea of the eyes of the Lord roaming throughout the earth was scary to me. It was like he was looking to see if I was messing up, if I was doing anything wrong. (laughs) He was looking to see if there's anything to condemn in my life. But praise God, over the years of looking, reading this letter over and over that he sent for me, that he left for me, and looking at these photographs of him, I have developed a more true picture of what God is like. And now, when I read this phrase, for the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth, what that says to me is he can't take his eyes off you. You are so precious to him. You are captivating to him. He is always thinking about you. He cares for you so much. His eyes roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support Those whose heart is completely his. Now sometimes it's hard for us to read stories like this, as wonderful as this story is, because in this story, meeting with Jesus meant that he healed. It meant that he raised the dead. And sometimes in life, that is not the way that he strongly supports us. Sometimes we go go through difficulty, sometimes we go through loss, but this verse doesn't say that the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may heal everyone all the time. It says that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So I don't know what you're going through in your life today. I don't know what you'll be going through in a week or in a month or in a year. In, in 2019, I had no idea that 2020 would look so different than any year I had ever lived. Yeah, I don't know what's coming for you, but I do know that whatever it is, God has a way to strongly support you. Um, I'm sure you've heard of Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Dutch lady, and she lived during World War II. And when the Nazis occupied her home country, She joined the group of people that were out to stop the horror and rescue as many Jews as they could. This group um, wouldn't share their names with anyone. Everyone was named Schmidt, which is like Smith in our country. So that if they were ever caught, they could never rat on anyone. They didn't know anyone's names. They were all Schmidt. Sometimes they disguised themselves. Sometimes they took messages to people. Sometimes they took people over borders. And they hid Jews, and they tried to save Jews. She herself and her sister and her father hid several Jews in their home. And after months of doing this good work, a a Dutch neighbor ratted on them. And the Nazis came and arrested her and her family and people she loved and took them to concentration camps. Some of them died in the camps. Corey herself was slated to be gassed. Every woman her age was supposed to be gassed on this certain day. But because of a clerical error, someone had written her birth date wrong on her paperwork. She was released instead of being killed. And after she was released, she went into ministry. After she got herself cleaned up from all the fleas, and all the lice, and all the horror that she had been through. She began a ministry of reconciliation and healing and bringing people back together and forgiveness. She herself struggled to believe and really accept that God's forgiveness was for everyone, even the guards in her concentration camp, if they would repent. She traveled the world for years after that. She called herself the tramp for the Lord, and she would tell people things like, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. And people listened to her because of what she had been through. And people would tell her, "Corey, it must have been your faith. It must have been your faith that got you through that. And she would kind of say, uh, I don't think it was my faith. She would say, my faith was weak. My faith, it was hard to have faith in the camps. She, says, she would say, I think it was Jesus. I think the one who said he would never leave me nor forsake me, he's the one who got me through. So I don't know how God is going to strongly support you. I don't know what that's going to look like in your life. But this same Jesus that walked with Jairus to his house, this same Jesus who stopped and called this nobody, this lost woman, daughter, and gave her so much more than her health gave her an identity once again, this same Jesus will strongly support you whatever you're going through. If you will fall at his feet and recognize that he is your only hope. I love that the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when I see these snapshots of Jesus, I know he doesn't change. I know that's who he is for me too. And so today, May you know the God of Jairus, the God who welcomes your interruptions, who is an ever-present help in your times of trouble, who feels the intensity of your crisis with you, and who loves to come to your house. And may you know the God of this dear woman, the God who sees you even when you feel invisible, for whom you and your pain will never go unnoticed, who places great value on you regardless of your status or your poverty, who knows your significance even when others don't, who calls you daughter or son when no one else knows your name, and who will strongly support you with his power and with his presence. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it.